the politics of safeguarding. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. And for those of you who've listened before, you'll know that in this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. And this, unbelievably, is our last episode, well, at least for now. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm by myself in the studio. Well, at least alongside my thoughts and reflections on the series. And I hope you'll agree we've had something for everyone. We've often looked at the practicality of safeguarding particular groups in certain scenarios, and together we've talked about how some of the law works in respect of safeguarding, and in fact, in all truth, how some of the law doesn't work in respect of safeguarding. And in most episodes, the concept of building a safeguarding culture has been mentioned. But there's one thing that we've assiduously avoided, and that is politics. Not because there are better podcasts about politics, but because this podcast mini-series was supposed to be about how safeguarding works, how the legal frameworks work, and how it's going to work in the future. But as the series has gone on, and as I've been thinking more and more about what our guests have told us, it's something which I don't think we can avoid, or should avoid talking about. And I decided, before recording this final episode of this mini-series, that I would conduct something of an experiment. And I took the word safeguarding, and I searched on Twitter. Perhaps that was a mistake. Perhaps some of you will say, why did you do it, Ian? But I thought it was worth just having a look to see what was out there in respect of social media. And as you might expect, many of the tweets are following from a recently released episode of Panorama. And I would really encourage you to watch that episode of Panorama if you haven't done so already. And there were two episodes of Panorama recently with a very safeguarding feel to them. One was about the experience of mental health inpatients, and the other was about the experience of people with learning disabilities in accessing NHS physical health services. And what you see in those series of tweets and those discussions online is people talking about practical safeguarding issues, about what it means to be physically restrained, about what it means to be within an inpatient setting rather than in the community. And in respect of learning disabilities and accessing NHS physical healthcare services, it talks about that sort of patient experience and whether or not it should be and how it can be changed or adapted for the particular patient, especially those patients with LD. And really, the Panorama series shows and highlights the consequences of what happens when those processes for a patient aren't adapted for them to meet their needs. It will probably come as no surprise, too, that there's lots of tweets about safeguarding in the context of the debate as to trans rights, transitioning and same-sex spaces. And that's something which 
I've tried to stay out of as a practitioner, not because I don't think it's an important issue, but because I think there are arguments on either side. But I've never quite been clear whether the arguments are all about safeguarding, all about politics, or all about something clinical. And I suspect it's a mixture of all of the above. But what's interesting about those tweets is that safeguarding is very much seen by people who are having those discussions in that space as a political issue about how politicians, charities, public bodies and companies apply the concept of safeguarding and how they understand the concept of it. There's some interesting things that come up too when you start to dig into and look at those tweets all around that issue. There was one tweet that stuck out to me, one reminding us that it was Victorian feminists who argued that the age of consent should be 16 and not 12. And that made me think that actually, yes, in the 19th century, we were having debates about safeguarding. They were being led by women. And then there was another tweet which really stood out for me too. And it just read, safeguarding is one of the most dangerous policies of the modern world. And I'm just going to pause and let you reflect on that yourself. And I've completely taken it out of the context. Because the fact that somebody has said that online, to me, is important. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong, but it simply fascinates me that somebody would say that. Because what it shows is that safeguarding is a political issue. And I hope my guests won't mind me saying But some of those who've appeared on the podcast have specifically asked me to avoid certain topics that they felt they were too political. And that got me thinking about safeguarding in politics. The two things are undoubtedly intertwined, and ICSA really shows it in the most obvious form, especially in respect of Cambridge House, Null View and Rochdale. If you haven't read that part of the ICSA report, I would encourage you to go and do so because it really shows the interrelationships between power, politics and safeguarding. Most of you will know that the issue in that part of ICSA was focused on a politician, a politician called Sir Cyril Smith. And in respect of Cyril Smith, there were rumours about him from 1979 to November 2012. And investigations into him and into what he'd done only really started after his death. ICSA shows how politics gave Cyril Smith the opportunity to abuse, but also, despite what seems to be relatively established and broadly known concerns about him and about what he was up to, how politics protected him. Now, Cyril Smith, I I fully accept, is an extreme example, an embodiment of the issue. It shows safeguarding and politics colliding. The same with Jimmy Savile too. Both of those two issues show politics and safeguarding coming together. And you see the interplay of power. You see the political wrangling that went on, the processes. But also, you see how this is not something new. 
and you see that the interrelationship between safeguarding and politics is something that's existed for a long time. And whilst Cyril Smith might be a more extreme example on the scale, there are more often subtle examples that we can think about. I recently uh, found myself delivering some training about how the court of protection works. And one of the things that we do in training is we effectively explain to practitioners, this is the court of protection, this is its powers, these are the sorts of things that the court of protection can do. In particular, if you discover that P, the protected party, is someone who is being abused or potentially will be abused. And one of the things that we were discussing during the training was what happened where local authorities discovered that an attorney or a financial deputy was financially abusing the person they were supposed to assist. And when we started talking about it, something came out as we started discussing it and exploring it because we started talking about referrals to the public guardian. And one of the things you often hear in training, and one of the things which is sometimes complained about, is the time between referring a case or a concern to the public guardian and the matter coming before the court of protection for something to happen. Now, I've always thought that's a bit of a myth. And so I explained that an urgent application can be made by a huge variety of people to safeguard P. And I explained as well, that you don't have to wait for the public guardian to make an application if you think that somebody is being abused. You can step in right there and then, as the local authority, as a health body, even perhaps as the police. But one of the people on the training said something that was interesting, and they explained to me that their local authority for whom they worked had a policy. And that policy was that they would not make any applications to the court in respect of concerns as to what deputies or attorneys are doing. The decision being that no matter the risk to the person, that it was an issue for the public guardian and not the local authority. Now, I'm a lawyer. and Of course, what I'm going to do instantly is I'm going to question if that is legally correct. Does it fit with the duties under the Care Act? Does it fit with the duties under the Social Services and Wellbeing Wales Act? Could it engage Article 8 or even Article 3? Would that policy be lawful? Does it not disadvantage people with protected characteristics within a locality? Those are all legal questions that I posed to myself, and I came up with answers which you probably can expect or can guess. But the important thing to recognise is that the decision not to challenge abusive attorneys or deputies in that circumstance is a political decision. Someone has set a policy to leave it to the public guardian. Just because the policy has been established by a social worker or a local authority lawyer doesn't make it any less political. And whilst in the financial context people may not feel this such a political decision is dangerous, it's important to reflect further. And when I was thinking about what happened and what was said in the training, I got to think about another case I was involved in a few years ago. And in that case, P was being targeted by a local criminal. P was actually being pimped out. P was being cuckooed. P was subject to all different types of what we would consider to be abusive behaviour. And the matter came before court. 
and I was involved. Now, in that case, the applicant local authority was prepared to restrict P to move her, to take her internet away, to take her phone access away, and to make sure that she had supervision within the community. What they weren't prepared to do was to seek any restriction against that local criminal, even though they knew who he was, where he was, and how to get to him, even if it meant lowering the restrictions against P. And their reasoning for that position was quite straightforward. They explained to us they were a small local authority, and quite simply, they had never done it before. They'd never applied for an injunction against a perpetrator before, in respect of adults at least, and they weren't prepared to go out and try to get such an injunction against the perpetrator. Cost was an issue, lack of institutional experience was an issue, and they just wouldn't do it. And just this week, the Court of Appeal handed down the judgment in Reg Court of Protection Injunction. For those of you who want the citation, it's 2022 EWCA Civ 1312. And in that case, the Court of Appeal settles the test for an injunction in the Court of Protection. It settles the type of injunctive provision which might be made and the procedure for making it. So now it must be politically untenable for any public body to suggest that there is something unusual or unknown in respect of applying for injunctions to protect a best interest decision made for an adult who lacks capacity in some respect. But there's another detail that's important And I think off the top of my head, I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, that Section 16 of the Mental Capacity Act came into force on the 1st of October 2007. Now, the decision of the Court of Appeal in RIG was handed down on the 11th of October 2022. So that's 15 years. 15 years of the Court of Protection making decisions in respect of Section 16 on behalf of people who lack capacity to make those decisions for themselves. And whilst it's fair to say there's been a number of injunction cases over the years, the fact that the Court of Appeal is only really setting down firmly now what the test is, what the process is, isn't a negative reflection on the Court of Appeal. Rather, it shows a political issue in respect of how we've been approaching those people who would harm P. Politically, what it shows is a reluctance to put resources into pursuing injunctions to protect adults who lack capacity to make certain decisions. And what you may remember is earlier in the series, we were joined by Mark Caulfield, an independent social worker, And during our discussions, one of the things that we talked about was the use of the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court. And we talked about the powers, we talked about how they were used. And one of the things that was really interesting when we discussed with Mark was the lack of awareness of those powers under the inherent jurisdiction. And also, really importantly, how a social worker might only bring one such case in their entire career. He also, very candidly, couldn't remember what, if any, professional development or training he had had in respect to the inherent jurisdiction. Now, the inherent jurisdiction is there to protect people who, but for constraint, coercion, 
control, can make their own decisions. It's for people who fall outside the Mental Capacity Act. It's for people who, but for that external influence, can decide something for themselves. And the inherent jurisdiction is described as the great safety net of the law. The question that arises then is how often are we using that net? And if we're not using that safety net, why not? And I do think it's a political decision. It's a political decision not to train social workers in a particular area. It's a particular decision not to pursue people who want to abuse those individuals. And one of the great things about this series is that we've had people listening outside of England and Wales. And and you might be one of our listeners from Ireland. And Ireland really is very interesting in respect of safeguarding. On the 19th of November 2021, Ireland had its first adult safeguarding day. And RTE did a really big piece of work in respect of it. Lots of journalists involved, lots of resources, lots of camera time, lots of column inches. And RTE went out and spoke to people who were involved in the process of trying to establish a system for safeguarding adults in Ireland. And some of the things they got back, some of the quotes they have are really quite stark. Dr Sarah Donnelly is a professor of social worker in UCD. And she said, until legislation is progressed, we will continue to fail to protect and uphold the human rights of adults who are vulnerable to harm. And in Ireland, there was a real recognition and a real discussion and a real debate that adults who were vulnerable to harm in Ireland were not getting the same level of legislative protection that was afforded to children. So the Law Reform Commission in Ireland started looking at the framework for safeguarding adults in Ireland. And there have been debates about those issues in both houses of the Irish Parliament. And during those debates, the abuse of particular vulnerable adults has been raised. People have discussed experiences of their constituents, things that have appeared in the Irish media. Now, for us in England and Wales, looking over the Irish Sea, we might think, wow, it's quite surprising that there's a difference that's so palpable there, that those discussions are still being had. But then you'll remember that actually we had Professor Rosa Friedman on, and she reminded us that we're not working towards a set of international standards for safeguarding children and adults. And she explained that essentially in all of this, the reason why we don't have a core set if you like, an international convention for safeguarding, which, according to Rosa, would never happen, is because the political will to agree a set of common standards is simply not there. And then you remember me speaking to Dominic Opelinski from Hunter's LLP. And Dominic works all over the world in respect of safeguarding. He works in Africa, in Asia, as well as here. And he reminded us that the important thing is not to impose our standards in respect of safeguarding on other countries and the politics that happens and arises in respect of operating safeguarding systems when they're developing in different parts of the world. And if you think about it, the decision to operate a unique system in respect of safeguarding is essentially a political one. 
we want, as a country, our own system to fit the context in which we're working. And that's perfectly understandable. Each country has its own different challenges. But what I never quite understand is why you wouldn't want to look at trends in respect of risk which have occurred in nearby neighbours, or what has worked in a particular system nearby, or what hasn't. Now, really interesting is the Isle of Man. And the Isle of Man seems to buck that trend. So the Isle of Man has their own safeguarding act. It's called the Safeguarding Act 2018. And if, like me, you're a law nerd or a safeguarding nerd, please take the time to go and have a look at that act. It is one of the most beautifully clear pieces of legislation in respect of safeguarding. And it addresses some of the issues that we've struggled with here in England and Wales. The other thing worth a look is the Isle of Man's Safeguarding Board's website. Because again, perhaps a little bit uniquely, not only does it share learning from safeguarding issues on the island, but looks beyond that too. It looks to safeguarding from comparable systems. And there's a part on the website where they're effectively taking that knowledge and they're depositing it there. Now, their website's only been open for a few months, but they've started to put resources there. And so it's a really interesting comparative exercise. And the whole point of learning in respect of safeguarding issues is to avoid issues occurring again in future, to preempt what might happen and stop it from happening. So, politically, what is approaching in the United Kingdom? We've had a new Undersecretary of State for Safeguarding for less than a month. It's Mim Davies MP, if you're wondering. And one of the things that perhaps will be in her entry is the online safety bill. We know it's high on the agenda for Michelle Donnellan, the Culture Secretary, because the Molly Russell case has put it in the media and political spotlight. If you don't know about Molly, it's worth looking into it. Molly Russell was a 14-year-old from Harrow, and she took her own life in November 2017 after viewing extensive amounts of contact, particularly on Instagram and Pinterest, relating to suicide, depression, self-harm and anxiety. And just last month, the inquest into Molly's death was concluded. And in respect of that inquest, the coroner found that social media contributed to her death. And it stated on the record of inquest that she died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. Molly's father has been on the news recently. And he said that further delays in implementing the online safety bill will endanger young people, just as they endangered his daughter. But the political issue is not in respect of the having a bill, it's rather the contents of it. And that was paused in July of this year. And it has to undergo further revisions because there are concerns as to the protection of free speech online. But Mr Russell, Molly's father, was clear and he told The Guardian, if we wait around and chase perfection, we're endangering young people in particular who are exposed to harmful content. So there's a real political hot potato here in respect to protecting the freedom of speech of those people using online forums, but also promoting the welfare of children. And I have absolutely no doubt vulnerable adults too. 
the way in which the bill is finally passed will have legal and political ramifications, not only for us, but other countries will undoubtedly look at the final legislation that's passed and how it works in practice. And interestingly, it will contain a new safeguarding duty, one that bites upon private companies in respect of illegal content and protecting children and adults. How that safety duty, and that's how it's described in the bill, a safety duty, evolves will be something to watch. And we need to think about pre-existing duties too. The current financial situation will raise issues in respect of access to food and heat. Whether those will be thought of as safeguarding issues will undoubtedly be debated amongst practitioners. Just last week, you might have seen a debate that took place in respect of children at a primary school, and in particular, when their parents got into arrears for playing for their school dinners. Is a child's parent or carer being in arrears in respect of school dinners a safeguarding issue? My initial reaction is no, but there were others who passionately argued that it is right for the school to think of it in that way. And when you scratch under the surface of that particular story, you start to find other things which suggest it might be. There's a really interesting piece of journalism that looked at what happened in North Wales, where a child's parent or carer got into arrears in respect of school dinners. Basically, what the journalists did was they went to all the different local authorities in North Wales, they looked at the systems that were in place, and they asked all the local authorities for comment. They asked how much different local authorities had in respect of arrears for school dinners. And the first thing that came out was that actually there were hundreds of thousands of pounds owing in respect of unpaid school dinner bills. So that was common across those local authorities. But the interesting point is that in respect of those arrears, what happened with them, different things would happen depending on the local authority area where the school was based. And if you look at the article, it gives a variety of different examples, different quotes from different local authorities. And there's an interesting comparison you can make, because you see in the article that in Wrexham, the issue of school dinner arrears was seen as a safeguarding issue. But in Gwynedd, it was a financial one. Now, they're both applying the same law, of course, but the slant, at least the slant that was given to the journalists at the time, was very different. So politics and safeguarding simply cannot be divorced, but really have to be talked about. There are moments in our country's history where safeguarding systems have failed and the spotlight has been shone. And in my own mind, thinking back, just as I was starting out at the bar... One of the things that was very much in the spotlight was the death of baby Peter Connolly. Child protection was being discussed in the news. It was being discussed in Parliament. And it was being reconfigured. And then when in May 2010, the Conservative and Liberal Democrat coalition came, we saw a whole new approach to how we went about looking into issues of child protection and child welfare more generally. Neil Parton calls it an authoritarian neoliberal approach. 
And clearly, those words are all embodied with political meaning. So in this series, we've undoubtedly shied away from talking about politics and safeguarding. I'm a lawyer. Many of our guests have been from a legal or social work background, and their professional lives are not about arguing for changes in the legal framework or the policy framework or the practice framework. They're about the application of it. But as my concluding thought for this mini-series, I ask this. Do we as practitioners need to be at the political table when the law and policy is being changed? Do we need to be there to give examples as to how things work on the ground or how they might work on the ground? I have absolutely no doubt that if politicians heard some of my war stories about abuse especially systemic abuse of vulnerable adults, I think they'd be surprised. I'm not sure they always hear it, certainly not from a safeguarding perspective in any event. Undoubtedly, we must get involved in those discussions, talking like we have in respect of this series. Sharing our experiences and thoughts is so important. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you as my listener. Thanks very much to David Bain, our producer, Beth Williams from 39, who helped pull this mini series together. And who knows, perhaps we'll be back in 2023. If you want to know more about us, visit 39essex.com. And if you want to connect on socials, then you can add me at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at safe underscore cast. And you can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. The 39 Public Law podcast moves on to another important topic now, judicial review. But I hope we'll be back sometime in the future for more episodes of Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast, available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. <laughs>